Hi, I'm Caitlin. And I'm Shelley. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Red Mom, Blue Mom podcast. We're two moms on different sides of the political aisle, discussing politics, current events, and social issues. We started this podcast because we want to encourage conversations on tough issues and show that you can have a respectful, productive dialogue even when you disagree. It's hard to believe, but you can actually still be friends with someone with whom you have very different political opinions. Please know that Shelley and I aren't experts on the various topics that we discuss, although we do our best to be informed and accurate. We also share our reference material on our website at redmombluemom.com. Also, we of course do not represent all moms or all conservatives or liberals. Our discussion each week simply represents our own opinions. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Hi, this is Shelley, and today's topic is abortion. The fact that Caitlin and I are jumping into such a controversial, emotion-invoking topic in just our second episode of Red Mom, Blue Mom should tell you we're not planning to take on just softball issues in this podcast. We want to have real conversation from two two differing viewpoints about really difficult political issues, and we will not shy away from the tough ones. Today in particular, we're taking on abortion because it's been in the news lately with one law that passed in New York recently and a proposed law that failed in Virginia. Uh, Both were attacked by the pro-life movement and conservative politicians for purportedly permitting late-term abortions. But my first question for today is, if late-term abortions represent only a small percent, um, and if there's no data indicating there are any late-term abortions, uh, elective late-term abortions at all, then why are we focused on this? Is, is this just a political tool from the right to drive outrage? Um, we've posted on redmombluemon.com a Diana Foster study from the publication Perspectives on Reproductive Health, dated November 4th, 2013, which says, and I believe this number is widely cited and undisputed between right and left, that only 1% of abortions are performed after 21 weeks. So 99% of abortions are performed before 21 weeks. That's halfway through the second trimester. Um, And there's virtually no data at all on what fraction of that 1% are performed in the third trimester. In other words, there is some data um, that most of that 1% is uh, between 21 and 25 weeks. And uh, none of the studies I've seen have any data beyond that. Not a single example of even one elective abortion after 26 weeks. Um, so why are we, um, why are we legislating or suggesting legislation over the issue of third, third trimester abortions if they don't really exist except when the baby or mom are threatened? Um, so the New York law, uh, that was signed, um, recently is called the, uh, Reproductive Health Act, uh, signed on January 22nd, which was the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And it permits abortions when uh, the patient is within 24 weeks from the commencement of the pregnancy, or there's an absence of fetal viability, or the abortion is, quote, necessary to protect the patient's life or health. It also removes from the homicide statute uh, doctors performing abortions. In other words, the law permits abortions prior to 24 weeks and after that only if the fetus will not survive or the mom's life or health is threatened. Uh, the Virginia proposal that did not pass rolled back a number of restrictions on abortion that had existed in Virginia, including a 24-hour waiting period 
a mandate that second trimester abortions take place in a hospital, a reduction from three doctors to one doctors to certify that a third trimester abortion is necessary for the woman's life or health, and uh, removing the words, quote, substantially and irremediably impair um, when speaking about uh, the woman's life or health. So in essence, you know, this and this came up back in the 2016 election when Donald Trump accused Hillary Clinton of killing babies. Um, there was a, an OBGYN uh, who's trained in abortions who said, quote, there's no such thing as a nine, ninth month abortion. Those who seek late term abortions are seeking them before pregnancy reaches full term, but often and unfortunately after they have discovered in the second or third trimester some problem with the fetus or danger to the mother. So, Caitlin, I guess my first question, you know, why the uproar? Can you tell us um, about the, the, the New York uh, and, and Virginia laws and, and whether you think they've gone too far? Sure. So I think there's quite a bit to unpack um, on this topic. And even as we look at the, the new legislation and proposed legislation that you mentioned, um, I would start with a couple things. So in terms of making sure that we're aligned on our data, and you referenced that study, which I'm going to come back to in a minute, um, I agree with the numbers. Um, so there's also some CDC data that talks about only about 1.3% of abortions occur after 21 weeks. Um, but what's interesting to that is that if you do the math, um, and I don't know what this data, what the year is from, um, but there were about 638,000 abortions reported to the CDC. Uh, about 1% or 1.3% of those is about 8,000 late-term abortions in the United States, if you define late-term after 21 weeks. The um, Guttmacher Institute, and I may be mispronouncing that, but there's a pro-abortion rights Guttmacher Institute um, that does a lot of research and, and analysis and study on this. They actually peg that number even higher, around 12,000 late-term abortions per year. So let's just assume between 8,000 and 12,000 sometime after that 21 weeks. I don't think that that number as you said, is probably in dispute. What is interesting though, just as putting it out there for, for consideration, that number, if it's 12,000 or somewhere in that ballpark, is comparable to the number of murders committed by firearms every year. So just to come out of the gate with kind of a political perspective, it certainly seems as though there is a lot of focus on gun violence, gun control, et cetera, and that we can put that topic to a separate day. I don't know that we want to get into that as well as abortion. That's a bit much, but I just want to put that in perspective. I was really surprised to see that. And so <clears throat> I think right. as we think about the importance of late-term abortions, does it really happen? Is this a big deal? Is it conservatives, you know, blowing it out of proportion? Well, when you compare it to gun violence, I, I think there's a good case to be made that that's a, that's a lot of babies. 8,000 is a lot, 12,000 is a lot. Right. So that would be my first piece. The other piece that I think is really interesting is referencing that same study that you just talked about. And I agree that that study that you quoted in terms of the number of abortions, et cetera, by Diana Green Foster, I think is pretty much the source of truth at this point. But what I found interesting um, as I was reading through the summary of that data, and again, it's posted on our website at redmombluemom.com, and contrary to the doctor that you just uh, referenced a few minutes ago, when the results of that survey came out and they talked about the top reasons for most women seeking later abortion, the issue of fetal viability 
or mother's health being endangered actually didn't make the list. And so what that study says is that, and I'll quote it here, most women seeking later abortion fit one, excuse me, fit at least one of five profiles. Number one, they were raising children alone. Number two, they were depressed or using illicit substances. Number three, they were in conflict with a male partner or experiencing domestic violence. Number four, they had trouble deciding about the abortion and then had problems with accessing abortion. Or number five, they were young and had never had children before. Nowhere in that list does it talk about fetal viability or uh, the mother's health being at risk. And so I think this, this concept that I think some on the left or liberals are trying to promote around, hey, it rarely happens, it's only 1%. This is, not, this is not an instance where someone gets to those final weeks or days of a pregnancy and decides that they can't manage having another baby. I think some of those results from this study would maybe indicate differently. So from a conservative perspective, and frankly, I don't even consider this a conservative or a political issue at its heart, and we can talk about that more in a little bit too, but this to me is a moral concern and and to your question about does the legislation in new york and the proposed legislation in virginia is it going too far is there too much focus on this late term element of the language i don't think so because i think this is very indicative of how we as a as a society value life how we think about the value of that baby in the womb versus outside of the mother's body these are these are big important issues right. that I think are indicative of some cultural societal things um, that to me are not just conservative or liberal. They're not even religious necessarily, and the data and the numbers, although it's maybe only one percent, it's eight to twelve thousand babies a year that are being impacted by this. Right. Well, that's a good point, Caitlin, and I didn't know the um, the number eight to 12,000. So I think it's, that's, that's important. And, and, um, and you know how I feel about firearms. So, um, we, we will have to come back to that in another mm-hmm. episode. Um, but that, that Diana Green Foster study, one thing I want to note about it, um, you know, the, the term late term, it turns out is in a medical term. So it means different things to different people. That study, uh, defines late term as anything after 20 weeks um, but when you look at the study, when you look at the data that they found, they couldn't find any data really beyond, say, it looks like from the study, maybe 22 weeks or so. Basically, all of their data on the what they're referring to as the late-term abortions are women who got them between 20 and, say, 22 weeks. Um, and as you point out, yes, uh, you know, those, those women... Um, compared to the first trimester abortions tend to be, you know, young, unmarried, unemployed, um, no health insurance. So you're right. Those are elective abortions. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not based on, um, uh, based on, um, the, the fetus's viability or the mother's health. But, uh, again, you know, the, they're not, we're not talking here about third trimester abortions. We're not talking about, you know, President Trump's, you know, <laughs> nine month abortion that he uh, that he cited. Um, we're talking about people who have missed what you would call that 20 week mark. And and in that study, they they do address that a lot of those women, you know, don't know where to go, have to travel more than three hours, learn about their pregnancy late and and, and had some of the other issues that you pointed out. So, um, you know, they gave it a, a, a typical example in that study. 
um, like many women seeking an abortion, again, about 21 weeks, they cited a real life example of Lana, a Hispanic woman from California. She didn't learn she was pregnant until 21 weeks into her pregnancy. She was 15 years old and a full-time high school student. She lived with her aunt and brother in a household that received food stamps. She became pregnant with her boyfriend, boyfriend despite their condom use. And her boyfriend wanted her to continue the pregnancy, but she decided to get an abortion. Um, she explained, quote, I was too young. Um, I barely started going back to school and getting my life back on track. I wouldn't have enough things to support a baby. And then she described the decision as, quote, somewhat difficult. So um, that's the that's the sort of elective, um, quote, late-term abortion that, uh, that that study deals with. Still, there's no data really to show that there's any elective of abortions um, very far beyond that. Yeah, and I, a couple things, again, if I look at the CDC data, and that may, may be the same as the, as the Foster study that you've been referencing, um, probably similar source data, but it, it only specifies that only 1.3% of abortions occur after 21 weeks. So I, I haven't seen, or perhaps I missed it, that it's really within the majority of that small percentage is within 21 to 23 weeks, perhaps. But I would say, regardless, even if the likelihood of a woman going in at, you know, week 33, week 34, whatever, whatever point she is in that third trimester, even if the likelihood of that is small, and again, liberals keep saying, oh, that's never going to happen. A woman is never going to go in you know, on the verge of giving birth and decide to terminate that baby. I'm struggling to understand then why has why have these laws been written in such a way and kind of carved back in such a way that they are allowing for that. You're the attorney, I will of course defer to your expertise, but it certainly seems like we have made it easier for that potential, albeit maybe unlikely situation to happen. And if there is such certainty on the point of the left that, hey, this is never gonna happen, that's not what we're intending, we don't want for that situation to occur, but the law allows it. And I don't know if, if perhaps, and again, I would love to hear your expertise on this as a lawyer, you know, are laws designed to kind of capture those unusual and exceptional cases? If so, this this law certainly does it because the way it's written right now, I'm not seeing any of those those limitations. And I think part of the language that I have specific issues with, there's there's quite a few things, and you you outlined some of the changes to the law at the beginning of our conversation. But this idea of defining um, and changing that previously, you know, at least in New York, the old text of the law allowed for those third trimester abortions if the mother's health was endangered, among some other criteria, fetal viability, things like that. That's now been changed that it just talks about if a mother's health has been, could be harmed. And that definition of health is quite broad. It could be not only physical health, but it could also be mental health. It could be the family situation. There are different um, definitions of health. That feels very permissive and very broad um, to enable a woman to potentially choose, as unlikely as it may be, but to have that option to terminate a perfectly viable, perfectly healthy baby um, because of, let's call it anxiety or depression or nervousness about adding a new member to the family, whatever situation it may be, 
My understanding is that the law in New York now allows for that to happen. And that's, uh, that's a scary place, I think, for us to be. Right. Um, and I hear what you're saying. But yeah, my, my opinion on that, and, and, and I guess from the legal standpoint, both law is, is that neither law does what you're suggesting, neither, neither the New, New York law nor the failed Virginia law. Because they both still have in the statute, I, I believe, um, the word necessary before the words um, to protect the patient's life or health. Um, and, uh, and so in, in, from a legal standpoint, the word necessary is one of the, one of the strongest words you can put into a statute. Um, these prohibit abortions that are not necessary uh, to protect the patient's life or health after 24 weeks in the case of the New York law. Um, and so I don't see the, the fear that, and, and I've never heard a single case, um, heard of a single case where a mother has walked in, you know, in the eighth, nine month and, and tried to get an elective abortion for the reasons that you cite, like, oh, I've decided that it's going to be too hard to have this family or whatever. Um, I think that, you know, there's no data on that. And I, and I would, um, and I would think that we can take the statute at its face value that it prohibits abortions that aren't necessary, um, to protect the patient's life or health after 24 weeks. So here's my question on that. And again, looking to your, um, distinguished legal expertise, and I, I don't mean that as a joke, I really uh, really value your experience as an attorney here. In and of itself, if the only change to the language, and again, using New York and their Reproductive Health Act as an example, if the only change to the language was talking about um, at any time if an abortion is necessary to protect a patient's life or health, I would feel much more comfortable with that as kind of a uh, a fail safe to prevent against this very unlikely situation that we're talking about, this scenario where a woman comes in at the last minute and decides to have an abortion. I would feel much more comfortable with that necessary language that you're referring to if it was in fact still a medical doctor or a medical um, uh, a, a medical professional performing the procedure. But that's the other crux of this New York law that has changed that really makes me uncomfortable. And I think what causes a lot of discomfort on the Republican side, and certainly among pro-lifers, is that the text of the bill has also changed to say that an abortion may be performed by a licensed, certified, or authorized practitioner. Well, what does that mean? What is an authorized practitioner? Who is providing that authorization? I, I don't think in the bill, unless I've missed it, I don't think there's a lot of specificity around what does it mean to be authorized? What is the body that is providing that authorization? What are the qualifications that you need to bring to the table to enable yourself to become a quote unquote authorized practitioner? So when you right. combine the change of who can perform the procedure as well as now the language of necessary, who's making that determination on necessary? I, what are your thoughts about that? Um, I don't know New York's law on that, although I do know New York is a highly regulated state, mm -hmm. so I can only assume that they, somewhere in the statutes, have a definition right. of which types of, you know, is it physician's assistants, is it um, licensed doctors, you know, uh, who's allowed to perform abortions. Um, I, but I do agree with you. I concede, Caitlin, that those statutes are, were intended and do loosen 
the restrictions on abortions in those states. Um, and, and, and go ahead. What do you think? What do you think ultimately is driving that? Right, there is clearly a partisan divide between conservatives and liberals. There's clearly a religious element as we think about the pro-life movement and the strength of, in particular, Christians and Catholics, mm-hmm. right, that are very vocal in that movement. Mm-hmm. So there's a religious element. But as we think about, and I'm just interested, not that you represent all Democrats or liberals, but what do you think is driving it's that? Driving because that. we hear, we have consistently mm-hmm. heard for years, for decades, right, a woman's right to choose, government government needs to get their hands off of, of my ability as a woman to choose my reproductive health. I mean, those are kind of the standard uh, slogans or talking mm-hmm. points around this, but where we have gone with the New York law and the proposed legislation in Virginia seems to be pushing that to the very far extreme around what I would argue most Americans are probably comfortable with in terms of what it really allows. Again, those extreme or unusual or exceptional cases that I think we would both agree, we sure hope that those things aren't happening, but the law seems to allow for it. Now, I know we have some discussion around necessary and some of the specific verbiage, but what do you think's driving that? Is it I don't know for sure, but I think on both sides of the aisle, what draw, what drives these abortion laws is the other side of the aisle. Right. And so, for example, we've seen um, in the Trump era some really restrictive sort of um, uh, Trump era uh, abortion laws being passed in other states. There was a uh, Mississippi law banning abortions, uh, all abortions after 15 weeks. There was an Iowa law um, that passed, uh, the Mississippi law was struck down, but there was an Iowa law that passed uh, banning abortions whenever there's a heartbeat, which can be as early as six weeks. Now, many women don't even know that they're pregnant at that point. Um, Ohio passed a similar law um, and has proposed another one that just bans it outright. So these types of laws, um, you know, really... uh, restrict, if not eliminate, the ability to get abortion and an abortion in those states. There's, we've posted on redmombluemom.com from the uh, publication that you cited a few minutes ago, a state-by-state chart of what the abortion laws are in every state in the United States. And I want to point out that abortion is highly regulated in the United States. Um, There, if, if you look at that chart, you can see that there are 19 states that do require an abortion to be performed in a hospital after a specific point. Uh, 19 uh, states that require the involvement of a second physician after a certain point. Um, There are many states that prohibit funding or allow insurances not to cover uh, abortions. There are 18 states that mandate um, women be given counseling before an abortion. 27 states require a woman seeking an abortion wait a specific period of time between when she receives counseling and the procedures performed. And um, 14 of those states effectively require the woman to make two trips um, to obtain the procedure. 26 states require one or both parents to consent when a minor is seeking the procedure. Um, So a lot of these laws, some of them at least, were designed to stop abortions or to make them much harder to get, and, and, and they were passed with that intent, and they actually do have that effect. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it's fair that I have more rights over my body here in Colorado than uh, women in Ohio or Iowa. Um, and 
uh, and you know, uh, abortion is already hi- highly regulated. I get that, and I I understand the the complexity that's presented by states having uh, different laws uh, around this topic. And I, I kind of come back to, again, what is driving this from a, from a policy perspective on either the left or the right. Um, and I think it's really interesting because the other phrase that I hear, I hear used quite frequently from the Democrat side of things, and even in the context of this New York law, was there was a lot of celebration about how this law now provides for expanded access to abortion. And you just listed off some of the restrictions. And again, as you said, they vary state by state around how many visits a woman has to make before she can have the procedure, how many doctors have to be involved, uh, alternatives to, to abortion that have to be presented. And I suppose I understand intellectually that all of those things are barriers to access. And so if the goal is to provide increased access to abortion and take away some of those checkpoints i i understand where that's coming from but i still challenge is that the right thing to do now i am clearly pro-life um i have historically not put a lot of focus on abortion it's always something i've been very uncomfortable with it's something that i um, always kind of considered myself pro-life, but it wasn't a strong issue for me. It certainly wasn't an issue that, that necessarily drove how I voted for candidates. Uh, as I think about comparing it to issues around government regulation or immigration right. or things like that. Right. Um, but I will say these last couple of weeks uh, with these uh, with these new laws in, in New York and the, the Virginia discussion, and the fact that you have, in, in Virginia in particular, Kathy Tran, who was the Democratic sponsor of the, of the proposed legislation in Virginia, uh, she was flat out asked, and I'm sure you've seen this video clip and many of our listeners have as well, she was flat out asked by a colleague, would your law allow, regardless of the likelihood of it to happen or not, would it legally allow a pregnant woman at term to abort her baby as she's delivering. And that woman, Kathy Tran, said yes. Right. Now, she has since, of course, of course, tried to walk that back and kind of restate it and massage it a little bit. And, but but that's the truth of it, right? And so as I think about, you know, abortion and kind of my own personal views on the topic and how it's become a stronger issue for me, those types, these types of laws and that type of response from an elected official who's sponsoring this legislation, those are very concerning. And again, I come back to, yes, I'm conservative. Yes, I'm pro-life. I'm not particularly religious. So that's not a huge element for me personally. But to me, that that kind of conversation, that kind of uh, uh, thing that she's admitting in front of colleagues that, yes, my law would permit this to happen, that should be very concerning to everyone. And I I just, yeah. that I think is driving, going back all the way to your original question, what is driving some of the outrage? Mm-hmm. It's that kind of comment and admission from the people that are sponsoring these, these legislations in their respective states right. that are causing the uproar. That is the problem. Certainly, Kathy Tran's comment there um, is, you're right, what um, caused tremendous up- uproar. Um, I think what she should have said is that uh, that yes, that's a possibility if the mother's life is in danger or if the um, if the uh, if the baby has uh, 
uh, some severe problems with viability, which is what the statute says. Um, but she, you're right, she just answered yes. Um, That's what the statute says today. But what she was proposing, just like in New York, eliminated those requirements. No, it's still in there that it would be necessary to show that the mother's health or life is in danger or that the, the, the fetus isn't viable. That stays. What was eliminated, remember, was the irremedial you know, damage uh, or damage or, yes. to her. So, so, so you, so they you, loosened the, they the, loosened, right. you know, what it means okay. for her life to be in danger or her health to be in danger. Right. But, um, what Kathy Tran should have done is say, she, she should have said a couple of things. One, that it never happens, but, <laughs> and two, that, um, yes, that, that would be possible only in those circumstances, which which is what the law provides. So her her comments, you know, you're right, obviously sp- sparked a lot of outrage. You mentioned religion, and and you're asking about what you know. What are the driving forces on both sides? Um, don't you think that religion is a main driving force in terms of the attempts to restrict abortion? I. I think there's certainly a religious component. So for folks that are have a strong faith, that have a strong belief in, in Catholicism or Christianity or frankly any number of other religions where all of God's creation is is to be valued and cherished, especially innocent life, absolutely there's a religious component there. But I, I would challenge anyone to say, I don't care if you're an atheist, this concept, and again, even if it's very unlikely to happen, the the scenarios that this bill in New York uh, could potentially enable to happen, as unlikely as it may be, is killing a baby when it is fully viable outside of the womb and when there is no risk to the mother's uh, physical life. Again, we've got this nebulous de- definition now of it, if it's going to harm her health, which again can include mental health and other things. I would really challenge anyone to say that that is a religious concern about killing that baby. That, that to me, again, is just a moral issue, something that we as a society, regardless of religion, um, should be focused on and, and frankly shouldn't be that controversial. I think that's what I struggle with too, is that when you think about what this law could enable legally, um, worst case scenario, what none of us want to happen, I don't understand why it's so controversial on the left to kind of be confused about why there's so much outrage. I mean, they're, they're the, the, you know, take these laws at face value, take the changes that are being proposed at face value, and it's opening up this whole new world of, um, you know, quote unquote, access to abortion and reproductive health rights that is really new territory for us as a society. And, and so for me, that yes, the religious piece is a component. I absolutely understand why religious people are so pro-life um, as dictated by their faith often, but man, oh man, this to me is not just a religious issue. Right. Um, I can understand that. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think that, um, I was raised Catholic and, and, and so I know that that church is very much against abortion and, um, and, and consistently is against the death penalty as well. Um, and, and I guess I, I, I think that there's a lot of religion behind it because, you know, the conservatives, um, 
don't don't like to see a lot of regulations, don't like to see a lot of laws, don't like to uh, to regulate things heavily. And so, again, going back to this language, is it necessary for the mother's health? If we had any data that suggested that um, women are getting third trimester abortions uh, because they're depressed, uh, then I guess maybe I could be persuaded to agree with you, but uh, I haven't seen that data. And so, um, and so I, I, I don't understand the, um, the passion, except if, you know, religion is really 100% the, um, the movement. Yeah, but I would say this concept of, well, conservatives or Republicans traditionally are against regulation and they want government to stay out of things. To me, trying to make an analogy between someone wanting fewer tax regulations on small business owners versus having legislation that's going to protect innocent lives, babies from being aborted when there's no medical reason to, to do so, those to me are not analogous. And, and I would almost flip it around from a conservative lens as I think about what I would consider a little bit of hypocrisy on the liberal side of the argument. You know, it seems to me that we always hear about how, uh, and this is a broad generalization, but you know, Republicans are just so mean-spirited and they don't care about anybody. And it's really the Democrats and the left that are the, the party of supporting the most vulnerable among us, right? And, and taking care of groups that, are, that can't defend themselves and can't care for themselves. And, and oh my gosh, Democrats are so virtuous because they really defend the, the, the less vulnerable, uh, or excuse me, the most vulnerable among us. Well, here is this group of unborn children, unborn babies. Uh, I don't know how you could argue that there is any more vulnerable group, any any group less able to defend themselves, less able to take care of themselves than um, children that are in the womb. And yet that seems to be kind of carved out almost from this, from this liberal uh, doctrine of caring for, for the vulnerable. And so that that's that's my perspective as a conservative i don't understand the disconnect between that that liberal virtue and yet this abortion issue just seems like there's a real disconnect in how abortion and how many on the left think about it and want to um enable this this sweeping permissive legislation how does that fit in with this concept of, of caring for those that are vulnerable? Right. I, I mean, I think you raise a good and logically sound question. And I've heard you say it in a different way in the past. And that is, you know, from a moral standpoint, what distinguishes uh, killing a baby inside the womb versus mm-hmm. outside? And I, um, and, uh, and, I, and I can respect um, the conservative view that they're providing a vi- uh, voice for the most vulnerable. Um, so, and, and actually I think this point you raise is especially tough issue for liberals because nobody actually likes abortion. Not women who have an abortion, like 15-year-old Lana, um, not men who impregnate women who have, who have an abortion, not pro-choice activists, not pro-lifers, and uh, not physicians who perform abortions. So no one wants to say that they think abortion is good. Um, and, uh, and I think that, like I say, I think that it's a, it's a very sound question from a moral standpoint. I think that the um, basic and somewhat obvious answer 
is that um, that the it has to do with viability and and the fact that the when the baby is inside the mother and completely dependent on her body, then it has to be the mother's choice, even when um, nobody's really comfortable with terminating that fetus's life. Um, so I, I know that feature isn't enough for some um, from that moral standpoint, um, but it is for others. Also, I'd point out there's some, and, and you know this, Caitlin, there's some skepticism from the left around the sincerity of that moral question um, because there are inconsistencies with pro-lifers on the same point. For example, um, there are serious envir environmental toxins um, that cause miscarriages, um, lead, pesticides, um, arsenic in water. Um, when, when the Flint water catastrophe happened, a lot of miscarriages were caused, and those are babies that were wanted. Um, and there wasn't a huge, you know, um, outroar from the pro-life side. And so I think there's some, you know, some um, skepticism in terms of uh, whether pro-lifers really want to protect the most vulnerables. And similar, similarly, with cases like Lana's, um, to conservatives, I would ask a sister moral question, which is, why would you want to force a 15-year-old unmarried poor um, child who is without parents like Lana to raise a child from her age 15 until the child is of maturity. How is this good for our society? How is it good for Lana? How is it good for Lana's baby? And doesn't it eliminate the, possibly the lives of Lana's future kids um, knowing that if she has this abortion there's a higher chance that she'll someday have children when she's older, finish school, and maybe in a position to be a better mom. So you know, for me, I can't understand, even when we have to deal with this difficult moral question you raise of killing, um, you know, what is worse from a moral standpoint? Yeah, and I, <laughs> so I don't have a good answer to either of those questions. So the, the scenario that you described and, and the, the potential perceived hypocrisy by liberals of conservatives or pro-lifers around hey, if you're so concerned with fetal viability and healthy pregnancies and delivering, you know, healthy, beautiful babies into the world, why aren't you focused more on environmental toxins and things that can cause either birth defects or miscarriages, etc.? I hadn't really thought about that. So I, I would need to noodle on that one a little bit more. I don't have a, a, a great immediate answer for you there. I think it's a, an interesting question to think about. The second piece about Lana's case and going back to her situation you know is it better to force her to have that child or allow her to have an abortion i don't know i mean i really don't know i think that's a that's a tough question to answer you know what i would like to focus on um you know i think there's a clear case to be made rather that you know that's a good example which to me illustrates, I think, something that conservatives and certainly pro-lifers have always wanted to avoid, this concept of elective abortion being used as a means of birth control. And I know when you described Lana's uh, use case, so to speak, um, I think that there was some some mention that she and her boyfriend had tried to use birth control or, or contraception or what have you, and it, and it didn't work. And that, that certainly may be the case. But, you know, the, the idea of 
again, some of these broader abortion laws, uh, loosening the restrictions on abortion, enabling access to use the, the phrasing of the left, does that translate into more abortions occurring at any stage, 20 weeks or 39 weeks? Does that enable that use of, of abortion, elective abortion, as a means of birth control? And, and then that, that can kind of lead into a whole separate discussion which is probably a whole separate podcast around this concept of personal responsibility. And as we think about Lana as an example, how do we do better as a society and as a culture of preventing that, preventing that Lana situation from happening to begin with? And again, it sounds like she had some awareness and education around contraception and birth control. It didn't work, but I'm sure that there are many other women and, and young girls in particular that may not be as educated or as as aware. And so how do we help support that education process to just prevent these unwanted pregnancies from happening at all right. to eliminate the need from the lawnas of the world to even have to face this, this question of abortion? But, you know, is it better for her to have the baby, you know, to force her to have the baby when she's not equipped to care for it and doesn't have the financial or emotional wherewithal to do it versus having allowing her to have an abortion I don't know. I don't know the right answer there. That that's that's why this topic I think is so right. tough. Right. If there was an easy answer there, it obviously would have been figured out right a long time ago. I don't know. Well, therein lies the the you know the reason for the support of the less on the left of the less restrictive um, uh, abortion laws. But um, if I had to suggest a compromise um, based on our discussion. Uh, I guess I would I, I would wonder whether if whether both sides and I think the answer to this is no but I'll say it anyway whether both sides could come together uh, and agree that if there was um, less restricted access uh, until viability which you know in a lot of these states looks like it's defined somewhere between Early 21 20, and 24 yeah. weeks um, if there was if there was uh, solid access to abortion during that time, then you know maybe the the left would would be willing to trade some um, more restrictive language in the uh, you know in the in the in the weeks after that. Um, I don't think that works for pro-lifers because I think, as you point out, they're just as worried about um, uh, um, first or second first, first and second early trimester. term, right, yeah. right. So I, I don't know where the compromise is, and we do agree on um, uh, education and access to birth control as uh, as one of the um, issues that could help. Yeah, and I think the tough thing with the compromise, and I appreciate you trying to think about how that might work, um, and again, I certainly don't claim any religious perspective on this, but as I think about my views as a, as a pro-lifer, you know, Who's to say that 20 or 21 or 22 weeks is the right um, timeline to determine viability? So this concept of, hey, we'll we'll trade off. We Democrats, we, we might trade off hypothetically right. access at a at a later term for more access um, earlier term defined around that 20 21 weeks, which is kind of the standard mm-hmm. right now. Even then, I mean, you can find stories of babies being born extremely prematurely obviously but babies being born prior to 20 weeks that by some miracle survive and so it feels like a bit of a slippery slope right around who is making that decision 
around when is that that baby viable it brings up whole discussions around when is that baby afforded the rights of becoming a person right and there's some interesting things even in the new york law um just going back quickly for a moment you mentioned at the beginning and i think we talked about it briefly the fact that the new york law has decriminalized the act of abortion and so now the new york law defines a person as a quote human being who has been born and is alive I would challenge you to talk with any mother at any stage of her pregnancy where it's a wanted pregnancy, uh, even unwanted, I suppose, to, to tell that mother, sorry, it's not really a person until he or she is coming out of you. That That is so outrageous to me. And the implication of that we've seen just two days ago, February 8th, there was a story in New York, New York Post reported that a man murdered his girlfriend. She was, I think, five months pregnant and New York prosecutors could not charge him with abortion or charge him with a second murder charge because now that baby in that in that uh, girlfriend's uh, womb is not considered a person under New right. York law. That doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel morally right. Again, that, that to me isn't even a religious question. I agree, and I have to agree with you on that um, since that's not an abortion issue that has to do with um, criminal you know, prosecution. And, and, and the ability to charge a uh, murderer with uh, two crimes versus one, uh, I agree with you that whatever, and, and I'm not familiar with, I hadn't read that the New York abortion law would have actually um, changed the ability to charge that person with, uh, with that second homicide. Uh, I think he should be charged with that. And so... So I think I'd agree to to a modification of the law if, yeah. that, if that's what it does. It just feels like it feels like, and I'm not pointing a finger at you here, but it feels like we can't have it both ways. We can't have people on the left using that example, saying, "Hey, that that man should be charged with a double homicide because he killed a person within that mother's womb." We can't have um, mothers celebrating baby showers and things like that, and yet at this. So, so what I mean by that is clearly acknowledging that you know it's not just a clump of cells it's not just some you know in indistinguishable being that is living off of its mother it is a baby it is a distinct human and culturally that's how we treat it right that's how we talk about it we celebrate it we look at sonograms of our baby we have baby showers you can't have it both ways you can't have that approach culturally and then at the same time in my view at least have legislation that then kind of distances it and then and then legally defines whether or not it is a person or a baby depending on its location is right. it in the womb or outside of the womb that to me you can't have it both ways i and i and i have to i have to argue that that you can because um the the uh the difference is um a, a woman's right to control her own body and for me the idea of forced pregnancy uh, strikes me as immoral. So um, I think that there's a real difference in the two. You know, I think there's a difference between the, you know, the the, the murder. Um, she <laughs> didn't want to be murdered. She didn't want her baby to be murdered uh, in the, the New York Post case. Whereas um, with, with, you know, a, a, a first or, you know, up to, up to viability term abortion, um, 
it's it's the mother who's got to be able to choose even though that is admittedly a difficult question and i agree with you that it is it is a being even uh before then but the fact for me the distinguishing factor is um when it's in the woman's body and when it's completely dependent on the woman's body um, we have to be able to draw a line there uh, in order to give a woman control over her body well i think um I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. And again, this is why it's not an easy topic. I, I do sincerely appreciate hearing your perspective and, and, and I yours and especially your legal expertise as we read these laws. And, you know, for me as a layman trying to understand these laws and how they're written and the importance of certain words, um, ultimately you and I disagree on this and, and that's okay. Um, is there anything you know, as I look at the New York law in particular, I was thinking about as we were prepping for this, is there anything in that that I would feel comfortable with? And really, no, I'm uncomfortable with the changing definition of woman's health. I'm uncomfortable with the fact that there can now um, be a licensed, certified or authorized practitioner. I'm not exactly clear on what that means. Um, uncomfortable with the fact that we have decriminalized abortion and a person is now defined as a human being who has been born and alive. So there's a lot I don't like. The only piece where for me, just speaking for myself, certainly not representing any movement or pro-life groups or conservatives, um, as I think about access and I think about women who may be in a rural part of the country, they may only have access to a clinic, they may not have the ability to kind of talk with multiple doctors before they make the decision to have a procedure. Um, at least I think the New York law and the Virginia law that was proposed, they would uh, reduce the number of, of doctors that you had to talk to before you could elect to have an abortion. I could maybe get on board with that, but I have to tell you, I'm really uncomfortable with, with the direction that these things are going. Understood. Understood. And I, and I think I'm comfortable with both statutes, with the exception of maybe the point you just raised um, uh, in terms of whether some other part of the statute affected, um, affected the homicide laws uh, in New York. And, and maybe I could be persuaded on the necessary to mother's health language that you and I discussed if I, if I had any data on um, you know, late-term abortions um, and that necessary clause being abused in some way. But, but otherwise, I, I do feel comfortable with both, both uh, the proposed changes in Virginia and the, uh, the change to New York law. All right. Well, there you have it, listeners. Um, Shelly and I definitely do not agree on this topic. We'd be very interested to hear what you think. Um, again, as Shelly has mentioned a few times, there are a number of articles and resources that we used as we prepared for this episode that we will be sharing on redmombluemom.com. We would love for you to take a look at those and, of course, ultimately form your own opinion. Um, but we would encourage everybody to continue to have conversation on this. This is this is a topic where it's hard to figure out where there's compromise. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, policies on abortion and political um, decisions kind of ebb and flow depending on who's in power. And I think we see that at the state and the federal level. Um, so it's, of course, not an issue that's going away, um, but it's a very complex one, lots of different elements to think about. I wish we could come out of this episode with a, you know, a, a, an agreement or, or a um, idea on how to drive compromise, um, but I think it's going to require a little bit more thinking uh, on our parts uh, That's right. collectively. That's right, Caitlin, and I sure do enjoy um, discussing these issues with you in any event. 
Um, so tune in listeners for our next tough topic and uh, thanks for listening. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon.